Amen. Thank you for joining us in worship uh, this morning. Uh, Dalton Snowmageddon 2022 is today, and um, maybe at some point there will be a little bit of snow. There's a little bit of ice and sleet out there right now, so it's, it's gross. Um, so those of you that are here um, on live stream that are gathering from home, uh, stay warm, stay safe. Um, we are happy for you to join us via live stream, and we're happy for those of you that are in this room being here. We had a great service at 8.30. We will not do the 11 o'clock service today. Our normal plan for January is three services in this room, 8.30, 9.45, and 11. Today, we've decided not to do the 11 um, so that we can get people home and off the roads um, for that service. Uh, tonight, as far as events for tonight, the youth did have an event planned for tonight that was canceled uh, because of the weather. The Awana ministry was already not going to be meeting tonight because of the school holiday tomorrow. There are some life groups that are meeting, and, and as far as individual adult life groups, I left that up to to your life group leaders. So you communicate with your leaders about what the plan is for your individual group. And I'll, I'll take this moment to say, um, right now we've got uh, four Sunday evening life groups that are semi-regularly meeting. Um, we've got three Sunday morning life groups that are regularly meeting as well. And, uh, and then we've got some, some others that, that, that happen during the week. So there are opportunities for engagement for anyone that wants to be more connected in the life and ministry of the church. And life groups are really, in my view, an essential way to become a part of the church and, and in community. And so especially if you're new, if you want to get to meet people, know more people, um, that's a great way to get to connected. So um, if you're here, there is that little sermon note sheet has a, a form that you can fill out to request information about that. You can ask any staff members for information about that. Um, email, just email the staff um, if you're watching at home for information about life groups. We'd love to share that with you. Um, as far as other announcements, as I said, so next Sunday, back to three services, back to Awana and youth as normal on Sunday evening, and, uh, and then we'll kind of continue that way for January, and we will let you know as we make plans for going back to two services and when we have an eventual plan for back into the sanctuary, which is still um, a number of weeks away as we try to figure out all of that stuff. Um, we do want you to know of a couple opportunities to serve the community right now. Um, we have a table set up in the lobby, and you can bring it by the church office um, also, but we are collecting flu supplies for Doug Gap Elementary School right next door. That's something that we do annually that's been a great way of, you know, it's amazing. We've had a relationship with this school. They're our neighbors, and for a number of years, we've just done simple things, and simple things can really build bridges. And so we have um, really been blessed by the opportunities we've had to build relationships at Doug Gap Elementary School through simple things like providing presents for, for families uh, at Christmas, providing coats in cold season, um, providing uh, flu supplies, providing school supplies. So this is another step in that partnership we have with them. Um, if you've ever been in a public school, you can never have too many Kleenexes and too much hand sanitizer. And so um, that sort of stuff is what we're collecting on that table out there. And you can bring that anytime in the month of January, um, and we will get that to the school. Also, um, I want you to mark your calendar for March 19th. We are going to be doing a service day with Rebuilding Hope, and that is um, led by Jim Boyd, who we've had in our services a few times to talk about. This is one of our partner ministries here locally. And... Uh, 
Rebuilding Hope is a construction ministry that um, he goes all over the southeast to do relief projects and construction projects, but we would do something here in the local area with him on one Saturday, March 19th, and so we'll get you some more details about that as we continue to firm those up, but for now, mark your calendars for March 19th, and I'll tell you, our goal is to plan the work that we can have a variety of ages and a variety of skill levels involved in that project, okay? So we don't, we want families to be able to work together as a family, and we want children to be able to be involved. We want um, people that are unskilled laborers to be able to be involved doing something, and so we just um, would love for you to mark your calendars, and as we get some more organization to that, still a couple months out, we'll, we'll let you know a little bit more about that. So for now, uh, turn to Luke chapter 16 with me. And we are going to go in again talking a little bit about money and a little bit more about eternity and our eternal destination in this passage. And the goal in this series of Luke, we've been here um, now over a year, the goal in walking through Luke is to, is to follow Jesus. That's why we called it Follow Me. We want to follow Jesus and we want to learn what it means to follow him with more maturity with a greater level of obedience, and to grow in holiness as his disciples. And so what we're doing today is we're going to unpack a few things that he says and and see what it means for us to be following him. Uh, But first, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, and I want to make my wife cringe in a story that I tell. Because of all my fine qualities, and there are many, um, there are a few that my wife does not prefer, and this is one of them. I am... um, historically and presently a procrastinator. And I am a serious procrastinator. And the illustration I thought of this week to, to, to tell you about this is freshman year of college, I made a series of poor decisions, um, and most of them related to my class schedule and things like that. And so my first, when I sat down for registration, I had no idea what I was doing. I came in with some credit, so I was able to register for some higher level courses, which caused me to get a little bit in over my head. And one example of that, I was a Christian studies major. And I was studying, at that time, I was actually a youth ministry major, studying, thinking I would be doing youth ministry for a long time, and somehow I, that didn't happen, and I'm doing what I'm doing. So I don't know. God tells a different story. But in this Christian studies major, what I was doing, freshman year, the very first college course I took was Christian philosophy. And when I say it's the very first college course I took, I mean it was 8 a.m. on Monday morning. So my first day of college, the first classroom I walked into was junior level Christian philosophy. And I had no idea what I was doing. Not very philosophical by nature. And so when I walked in there at 18 years old into a junior Christian philosophy class with a brilliant professor, and and by the way, this is still three Bible degrees in, one of the, the hardest, most challenging, but also the best classes I've ever taken. It was a fantastic class. But day one, deer in the headlights had no idea what I was doing. And they, there's this thing that they call syllabus shock, and that was, that was a real thing for me that day. Day one, you come into your classroom, and you think you're a really good high school student, and then this guy gives you this syllabus for what is going to be your Christian philosophy class, and you start to read through it. And never in my life had I, had I seen an assignment like this, but he said, okay, guys, in the big project for this, course, for this course, you get to choose your own adventure. You get to choose how, how you do this, this project, this final paper. So you can either 
turn it in halfway through the semester, let's call it October 15th. Either you can turn in a five-page paper on a Christian philosopher that's a simple biography on October 15th, or you can wait until December 15th, the last day of the semester, and you can turn in an 18-page analysis that includes a biography as well as an analysis of three major contributions from that Christian philosopher. Now, given that choice, everybody is going to say, hey, I'll pick a five-page paper over an 18-page paper any day of the week. But if you know any 18-year-olds and you give them the choice between turning something in on October 15th and December 15th, you're going to go towards December 15th. So it created this incredible dilemma for me. And I remember all those first two months of the class, I fully intended, I made the decision on day one, I'm going to write that biography. I'm going to write five pages. I'm going to turn it in October 15th. I'm not going to worry about it. And in my head, that's what I was going to do the whole time. But here's the deal with a procrastinator. The day before the paper is when you're the day, the night before the paper being due, that's when you write the paper, right? And so sitting down to write five pages on a philosopher, having not really done a whole lot of research, having only gone through a couple months of philosophy, recognizing I didn't know what I was talking about, what I was writing about, I started writing and realized, you know what? Maybe I will wait till December. Maybe I will just just put this off and and wait until December and figure out what I'm doing. And I, I actually talked to a couple of the other people in the class. And I didn't know of anyone in the class that was actually turning into December 15th. Everyone in the class on day one said, we're turning in October 15th. But then on October 15th, everyone in the class is like, no, yeah, we're, we're waiting until December 15th because we're all college students. So get to class October 15th, one dude, one single person turns in that paper. December 14th, I go to the library because a friend of mine from the class has said, hey, uh, several of us are, are working on our papers and comparing notes if you want to come. Literally 70% of my class is sitting around a table at the library. And these are all like juniors and seniors, and I'm a freshman, so they're like my college mentors. I don't know how to do a philosophy class, and I think they know what they're doing. And I have more written when I walk into the library than any of them. And I'm like, oh, this is how college is, I guess. So we sit there, and we sit in the library all night, and we hammer out our 18-page papers comparing notes. Which philosopher are you writing on? What do you think about this? What do you think about this paragraph? And we just all got it done. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, three degrees in, that's still me. I'm still the guy writing papers the night before, and it drives Jess crazy. But there's like two types of people in the world. There's Jess and there's me. There's Jess, who's never going to put off something to the last minute, that's always going to work ahead of schedule, that's always going to be organized and disciplined. And there's me that's always going to be like, I'll just squeak it out in the end and do the best I can, which is not really the best you can when the best you can is, is limited to the 12 hours before an assignment is due. But I was reflecting on it this week, and this week, y'all, no, no joke, I was thinking about this story, thinking about telling, it, telling this and talking about procrastination, and I realized, I told you about that one dude that on October 15th turned in the biography. This week, he, was named, he's a, he has a PhD now, and this week he was named as a seminary professor of, of Christian theology. And I thought, boy, right there, that one assignment separated the, the wheat and the tares, the disciplined guy from all the others that were just kind of floating around. This guy over here went on to get a PhD because he's the only one disciplined enough to do the assignment ahead of time. 
But as I was thinking about that, here's what I was th- here's where I tell you the story. Um, many of us are prone to procrastination. And many of us are prone to not make a hard decision until we absolutely have to. Hey, that was me yesterday and this morning. I didn't want to cancel any services because of snow because I don't actually believe when they tell you in the South that snow's coming. I don't actually believe it until I see it. So that's why we put off making the decision so long. Did I get an amen on that? That was awesome. (laughs) Um, But within our spiritual lives, what, what this story is telling us for today, we're looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man tries to go back on a decision that he's made, but, but at the end, it's too late. Whether he was conscious of making a decision or not, his delay in making a decision was a decision itself. And so many of us are prone towards that in our obedience of Jesus. We like the idea of following Jesus with discipline and obedience and pursuing holiness. We like that idea more than we like to actually do the work and live in the consistency to make that life happen. And so we're all like those, those college students on, October, on, on uh, September 1st sitting in class like, yeah, we'll get it done by October 15th. We all have that idea in our heads. That's the right decision. But then when the time comes, it's like, no, I'll just put it off a little bit. I'll put off following Jesus. I'll put off taking my faith seriously. I'll put off a real commitment to Christ until later, until I'm a little bit older, until I fix what's going on with my life. Right now, I'm worried about the stresses and the challenges I have in my life. And what this story for us today illustrates is that a lack of decision is a decision, and that life is short, and those decisions need to be made and need to be made in great clarity. So we're going to read through. Last week, we did the first 13 verses of of Luke chapter 16, and we saw what Jesus says about wealth and Jesus' challenging, confrontational statement that wealth is meant to make friends. And worldly people know how to make friends with their wealth. Righteous people don't always know how to make friends with their wealth. And what Jesus is telling you to do is in your wealth, in your money, in your financial resources, invest in eternal souls. Invest eternally and don't invest temporally. Because anything but an eternal soul is temporal. You can invest in a lot of things in your money, but if you're not investing in people for the sake of the gospel and Christ's kingdom, then you're investing in things that will fade. That's what Jesus is telling us. And then in verse 14, where we're going to pick up, the Pharisees are mad about what Jesus said. Okay? That's not new. This happens all the time. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, don't like what Jesus just said. So Jesus does a couple things here. And before we get to the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus makes a couple points that seem like they're off subject. But what I want to do is I want to show how the couple statements that Jesus makes in 14 through 18 connect us in the two stories of Luke chapter 16. And Jesus is making a really powerful point about wealth, about eternity, and about what it takes to live in obedience to Christ that really comes together in all of Luke 16. But we're going to take our time this morning to make sure we understand it rightly and see how the whole passage flows together. So, verse 14 through 18, we'll read first, but I'll, I'll give you the outline. Here's how, here's how we're doing it. First, in verse 14 through 15, the heart reveals health. The heart reveals where spiritual health is or spiritual decay is. And then in verse 16 through 18, the law reveals sin. It was intended to be that way. It remains that way. And then in verse 19 through 31, wealth reveals righteousness, but wealth also reveals sin. 
And that's what the story he tells in 19 through 31 is all about. So we'll, so we'll start verses 14 through 18. I'll read those there, and we'll unpack and see what the Lord's saying to us this morning. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, meaning what Jesus said about money in the previous story. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then in the, in the one sentence that sees the most out of place in this whole section, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So what is Jesus communicating to us here? First in verses 14 through 15, the heart reveals health. The Pharisees were mad at him. And Jesus knows why the Pharisees are mad at him. But there, there does need to be a little bit of explanation for, for those of us that, that maybe don't remember last week as well as to why exactly the Pharisees are mad. The, the Pharisees are mad, first and foremost, Jesus knows. They're just mad because they're lovers of money. Okay, but, but they're also ridiculing him. And you're like, well, if the Pharisees are ridiculing him, surely the people see what's up. Surely the people see that the Pharisees are ridiculing him because they are lovers of money. But, but hold on a second. I'm, I'm going to become a Pharisee apologist for a second and just defend their actions and why there was some confusion in the setting. The story from last week. Jesus affirmed somebody who stole from his boss changed the debts owed to his boss, conspired against his boss, and lived unrighteously. He told the story of this guy who was an unjust, dishonest manager. Jesus tells the story, and then he says, that guy did a good job. So if you were a legalist, there's a lot to ridicule there. If all you cared about was outward righteousness, and you wanted to, to make Jesus look bad in front of the crowd, Jesus just gave the Pharisees a little bit of ammo. And so, now, what the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus for, what, if you interpret Jesus' words in the first half of 16 a certain way, you could say, Jesus just affirmed a sinner. Now, Jesus is telling a fictional story called a parable to illustrate a point. Jesus is not affirming sin in that parable. But that's the attack that the Pharisees were leveling. They were saying, he just said the dishonest manager is the good guy in the story, therefore we're going to ridicule him. But the whole reason they were really ridiculing him is not because of the story that he had told, but because of the confrontation that Jesus had leveled against those that love money. Again, the point of the story is that dishonest people have a better understanding of how money works than righteous people. So we don't need to be dishonest, but we do need to understand the, the dangers of wealth, the limitations of wealth, and also the way wealth can be used for kingdom purposes. That's the point of the story, not be like the dishonest manager and lie and cheat. But pride makes somebody think that righteousness is all about outward actions. And guys, we know that health isn't about outward appearance. Health has much more to do with inward issues than outward issues. And, and here's the thing. So, I was playing basketball this week, I rolled my ankle, and I was limping for a day afterwards, and it was bruised, and you look at me, 
on Thursday evening or Friday morning, you're like, man, Tim must be really messed up. He can barely walk. He's walking around like this. But it doesn't mean that I was unhealthy because there's a whole lot of stuff that can go on that you can't see within a heart disease or within cancer or things like that that don't have an outward manifestation that are way worse than limping because of a rolled ankle. Because that rolled ankle was better a day later. It just was an outward health issue. But inward health issues, unfortunately, why we need good medical care, why we go and get scans and tests and things like that, inward health issues can go on unchecked and grow and deteriorate for years and years without being seen. That simple illustration of physical health is a powerful illustration for spiritual health as well because our outward actions don't define our standing with Christ. The Pharisees look great on the outside. It looks like they're being obedient on the outside, but on the inside, they're decaying because their hearts are not following Christ. They do what they do on the outside, not to please God, to impress people. And if you're living to impress people, you're going to look good on the outside. If you're, li- if you're living to impress God, you don't care what everybody else sees and knows, so they don't, might not, they don't know what they don't see. And so sometimes righteous people are righteous behind closed doors, and nobody knows how righteous they are. Nobody knows about their faithful prayer. Nobody knows about their generosity and their service behind the scenes. And Jesus is making the point, what happens inside your heart matters more for, your sin and, for defining sin and righteousness than what happens on the outside, Okay? So that's the first point he's making. But, and the point he's making is preparing us to understand how we receive or don't receive eternal salvation. We, we, we need to understand where our eternal destination is. So he's telling the Pharisees, he's about to tell a story about heaven or hell. And guys, just so you know, in the story, the Pharisees are going to hell. That's the point Jesus is making. Those that look good on the outside are going to hell because they're decaying on the inside. That's where the story is going. But he goes on to help us understand what sin and righteousness is in verse 16 and following, when he talks about the law. And this is important. Jesus says, The law and prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Here's what this means and what this does not mean. Okay, Some people might take this to mean, well, the law and the prophets were important until John. But now that we have the gospel of Jesus, we don't need to worry about the law and the prophets. And Jesus is actually combating that idea in verse 17. He's saying the law and the prophets had a different function before John than they do now. That's verse 16. Verse 17, they still have an important function. Okay? So in order to understand what we do with the law and the prophets as Christians that live in the age of the good news of the kingdom, we need to understand what does he mean by saying we, that they were before John and then something changed? And what does he mean that no dot is removed from them now? Jesus came to fulfill the law and to fulfill the prophets. Okay, that, Point number one, that's what we have to understand. Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill and to complete the purpose of the law and the prophets. But we have to understand what is that purpose And the best way I've found of understanding the role of Christians, because we're not Jews, we're not Israelites living in the Old Covenant, we're Christians, the best way I know to understand this is to define the law as having three distinct categories that need to be understood rightly. 
There is within the law, the moral law, which tells us what sin is and what righteousness is. There is within the Old Testament law also a ceremonial or sacrificial law that tells the Israelites how to offer sacrifices. But then there is also within the law a national law, a civil law that is intended specifically for Israel living in the promised land with a temple in Jerusalem under the king from the line of David. Okay, Now, if you see it that way, you see there is no temple in Jerusalem. We are not sons and daughters of Abraham. Therefore, this and Jesus, according to Hebrews, fulfilled the sacrificial law, completed it. And that's what, what the author of Hebrews calls obsolete, the sacrificial law that has been completed in Christ. So we no longer need to offer sacrifices when we sin. The old covenant tells us when you sin, you go to the temple or tabernacle and you offer a sacrifice. Y'all don't do that. That's, that's not what we do in Christ, okay? So that part has been completed, the sacrificial law. The civil law or the national law, that was only intended for Israel while they were in that period of history living in the promised land. So there are certain laws that just we can't apply to Americans living in 2022 because we don't have the, a king and we don't have, or we don't have a king of a human king in Jerusalem. We have a king Jesus, but we don't. We can't apply those two categories of law, either the sacrificial law or the ceremonial law. That's what is fulfilled in Christ. That's what had a unique purpose until John. And once the kingdom of God is is proclaimed, those two have been completed, have been fulfilled, and we need not be concerned. We need to understand. We can still learn great lessons from those things, but we need not follow or live under those commands. But the third category, the moral law. That is what will not pass away. Because here's what you... Here's what is so essential. The reason we can't say that the law doesn't matter anymore is because we cannot, as Christians, say that sin is defined differently in Old Testament and New Testament. We have to be able to build our understanding of of sin biblically as the New Testament authors do. They understand that what the Old Testament says is sin is still sin. The Ten Commandments still define sin. It's still wrong to take the Lord's name in vain. It's still wrong to commit adultery. It's still wrong to murder. It's still wrong to covet. Those things that are defined in the moral law are still sins. And the New Testament doesn't avoid that. It expounds on that. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus continuing to define what is sin in light of the law. So that's what he's doing here, okay? He's telling us, Spiritual health is revealed at the heart level. The old covenant definitions of sin still stand. And therefore, Pharisees, you are condemned in your sin. And he's about to say what happens when you stand condemned in your sin. Now, what in the world does verse 18 have to do about it? Why does he start talking about marriage and adultery? Because that's an illustration. Verse 18 is an illustration of what he's just said in verse 16 and 17. The point of 16 and 17 is Old Testament definitions of law don't, or definitions of sin don't disappear. What God says is sin as, when God says adultery is sin in the Old Testament, he restates it in verse 18. That's still sin. It was sin when you committed adultery in the Old Covenant. It's sin when you commit adultery in the New Covenant. The process for dealing with that sin is different in Jesus, and that's really great news for us. That's the good news of the kingdom. But, 
what he's telling us in verse 18, it's not an out-of-place verse. It's an illustration for a point he's making about the Pharisees and their misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the law. You don't find life in the law. You find life in the Messiah. The Messiah is standing right in front of them, and they don't see it. So now we see that the heart reveals health, that the law reveals sin, but we also see that wealth reveals whether or not we are living in righteousness. And also, as we unpack verses 19 and following, what I want you to know above all else, and this is the main thing I want you to take away from this, Jesus tells this story because he wants you to think about and reflect on eternity. And we read this story, the story's not, not about you, but it is. You're not the rich man or Lazarus, but you might be. And so this is a story of not just confrontation for the Pharisees, it's a story of confrontation for each of us. Because there's two men in the story that have two very different lives, two very different social standings, and two very different destinations. And everyone in this room is going to one of those two destinations. So therefore, we need listen, and we need think very critically about our eternal standing. So verse 19 and following. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, and in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and no one can cross from there to us. So he said, the rich man said, I beg you, Father Abraham, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And this crazy, scary verse, verse 31 he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And the clear warning that Jesus is foreshadowing there is that there are those that have rejected Moses and the prophets that will not be convinced by the risen Jesus. And, and the risen Jesus should be the, the clearest illustration that God has defeated death and that salvation is found in him. But those that rejected Moses and the prophets, they would reject the man risen from the dead too. So out of this passage, I want you to see that there's a rich man who is not named. There's a poor man who is named. His name is Lazarus. He's not the same Lazarus that's risen from the dead in John 11. But the, word, the name Lazarus means um, God will help me. And so it's a beautiful illustration just in that name of God's role with the two Lazaruses in the New Testament. But I want you to see too the significance that Jesus did name Lazarus. And I believe the reason Jesus named Lazarus is to expose the rich man and his actions and his attitude. And why do I say that? 
Because the way you know that the rich man was not just oblivious, but greedy, is when he calls Lazarus by name. So you could maybe, if there were two unnamed people, you could maybe just make the case that the rich man, he didn't know there was a poor guy outside of his gates. He didn't know the needs of his community. He was just living with what God had given him the opportunity to live in. And he was just doing what he thought was the right thing, and he was unaware of all of the needs around him. But notice, when Lazarus is in heaven, and, and um, the rich man is in hell, which is called Hades, but this is hell in this story. We have heaven and hell distinguished in this story. Two men, two lives, two destinations. The rich man calls out to Abraham and calls Lazarus by name. And so exposes himself. He knew who Lazarus was. He recognized him. He recognized the man that had sat outside his gate with sores and great pain and agony. He recognized the man that was longing for table scraps from his table. He recognized him. He recognized him as the man who he had not helped. And now, in his sinful pride, even in hell, in his sinful pride, he asks for Lazarus's help. The tables have turned in such an extreme degree that it goes beyond the fact that he didn't help Lazarus. Now he has the audacity to ask Lazarus to help him. And he makes two requests. Number one, he asks for Lazarus to bring water. Abraham says, no, 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 you can't go back and forth. And number two, he says, well, can Lazarus then just go and tell my brothers so that they don't make the same mistake of, again, no decision is a decision. Not deciding whether or not to follow Christ is in itself a decision to not follow Christ. So he's saying, don't let my brothers end up here. And and Abraham says, no, 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 that's not going to work either. But the dogs, I think, are a significant part there. You know, as when it says the dogs are licking the sores, the dogs are actually giving Lazarus some comfort as they lick his sores. And it and it feels like, oh, that's kind of a disgusting image. It's such a, a sad and and um, and desperate image to think about. But the earliest Christians who read this in the original language, there's a sense in the original language that doesn't come through in translation, in which most early commentators believed that the dogs in question were the rich man's dogs. And culturally in that day, who would eat the scraps that fell from the table? Same as today, the dogs would eat the scraps. And here's the extreme nature of this, of this image that Jesus is painting for us. Lazarus wanted the scraps that fell from the rich rich man's table. He did not offer those to Lazarus. Instead, he fed fed them to his dogs who enjoyed the scraps from the table. And then the dogs from the table gave Lazarus more comfort than the rich man would. And it, it is, again, just communicating that the rich man in his great wealth revealed a broken heart. And on the outside, you will look, boy, God's really blessed him. He's really doing well. God must really choose to honor that guy and give him a really comfortable life. In the same way, you would look at the Pharisees and say, boy, they look really good on the outside. They must be really righteous. And Jesus is saying, the outside doesn't matter. It's a theme throughout all of Scripture. Jesus, when, when um, Samuel um, comes and, find, and looks through the, the sons of Jesse to anoint one as king, he says very clearly, man looks on outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And from that point forward, we see in Scripture, it's very clear. God is not concerned about what you look like or what your outward actions look like. He cares about your heart-level motivations. But in this passage, I want us to see 
that Jesus wants you to reflect on your eternity. And Jesus is teaching us something about eternity. So five, five truths about eternity that I want us to see here. Earthly riches have no bearing on eternal destiny. In fact, earthly riches may even create a greater risk of an eternity of torment. And what I mean by earthly riches have no bearing on eternal destiny, you can't look at the rich man and say he's been blessed by God and therefore God loves him, surely he's going to heaven. And you can't look at the poor man and say, well, God's clearly punishing him in this life and is going to punish him in the next life. It, it don't work like that. That's not how it works. And if anything, it's harder for the rich man to live a life of dependence upon God because Jesus has just said you can't serve God and money. That's what he said last week's passage. And, and so the rich man has probably lived his life in service to money over God and so condemned himself. And Lazarus had no, had, had no thought that he could possibly find comfort and rest and ultimate fulfillment in money in this life. That, 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 that false idea never came into Lazarus' mind because he had nothing. And, you know, we can all say that we know this, okay? We can all say that, you know, People talk about the prosperity gospel and how it's a false gospel. The prosperity gospel, if you're not familiar with that language, says, if I pray hard enough, God will love me and bless me, and God wants all of his believers to prosper. That's the prosperity gospel, that God wants health, wealth, and happiness for all followers of Jesus. And, and many of us can say very clearly, no, I don't believe that. But many of us also do occasionally affirm light versions of the prosperity gospel. And it looks something like this. Well, God has really blessed that business. That business is doing well. Those people must really be honoring God for him to bless them with such a profitable business. Or, I got the job I wanted. I got the raise I wanted. God must really be blessing me. I must really be doing something right. Or on the other side, I was laid off from my job. God must be punishing me for something. Or maybe God's trying to get my attention. Those are those are light versions of the prosperity gospel. And God is, that, that's not the gospel. That's not how God works. Now, don't get me wrong. I want you to pray for God's blessing over your business, over your family, over your finances, whatever. Pray for God's blessing so that you can bless others. And sometimes God does that that way. But it's not an automatic where we can look at a business that is growing and booming and say, God's blessing it because those people are good Christians. That's not what that means. Nor can we look at a business that's failing and saying, well, they must not be honoring God in their finances, so God's punishing them. We, we can't believe those things to be, to be ultimately true. Lazarus is a true child of God who suffered poverty and pain. He's not a child of God because he suffered poverty and pain. The story just is illustrating. The story isn't saying rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. The story is illustrating Rich people, be careful that you don't find your fulfillment in this life. And the story is also saying that poor people sometimes have a greater awareness of their eternal need because their physical needs go unmet. So, so be careful about what the story is and isn't saying. Number two, there's two eternal de destinations. One is anguish, one is comfort. The image of, of Lazarus being at, at Abraham's side, some older versions might translate the word as Abraham's bosom or Abraham, Abraham's breast. And that is to communicate embrace that Lazarus is being physically comforted and embraced by Abraham, the father of Israel, to show the extent to which, Jesus is saying that to show the extent to which heaven is a place of comfort. 
And the fact that the rich man is desperate for just one single drop of water off of a fingertip shows the, the, the extreme suffering and torment of a life of anguish and, and separation from God, punishment, and hell fire. So we have earthly riches have no bearing on eternal destiny. There's two destinations. One is anguish, one is comfort. And number three, the decision must be made in this life. The rich man tried to change his mind. He tried to make a decision too late. This is where the procrastination comes in. No decision is a decision. You can't go back on things. You don't get a second chance after you die. Some people try to say that maybe God in his grace gives people a second opportunity after death to either accept or reject him. And this story says if that happened, everybody would accept. Everybody would be like the rich man. Get me out of this place and into that place. But the Bible doesn't doesn't tell us that. That doctrine is not found anywhere in Scripture. Either you decide to follow Christ when you are living in this earth, or when you die, your eternal fate is sealed. And at that point, there's nothing you can do to change it. There's no way to work your way out of hell. There's no way to, to decide your way out of hell. There's nothing that you can do about it. You have to make the decision in this life. Some have said that hell is truth understood too late. Because everybody in hell knows the truth of who God is now, just as everybody in heaven knows. People in heaven don't have more revelation of the truth of God than than the people in hell do. People in heaven have a greater experience of the love of God than the people in hell do. But the people in hell, they know the truth. They just discovered it too late. Number four, no one in either place can help you right now. And so there's this great comfort for some people in saying that their loved one who who has died is with them. They have this feeling that, that my, my loved one who has passed away is with me, is encouraging me, and God has sent them to comfort me, and they have this spiritual sense of that. And I don't believe, in light of this passage, that to be true and something that God does. And so if you are looking for comfort after the death of a loved one, Jesus provides greater comfort than that loved one. And so we shouldn't be looking for the presence of a lost spouse or the presence of a lost parent or the presence of a lost son to be, to be spiritually experienced. That's not what we're looking for. We need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit with us. And dead people can't preach the gospel. Lazarus, the rich man wants Lazarus to go do that. Go preach the gospel to my brothers. And Abraham says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. And finally... Heaven is for the hurting, and hell is for the proud. That's the ultimate difference between these two, that Lazarus, in his hurt every day, was longing, was calling out, desperate in his heart and in his mind for comfort, for relief, for healing, and for protection. And because he was looking for for healing for his hurt and comfort for his pain, he found it in the arms of Jesus. But the rich man, he had no needs. He didn't have anything that he needed, that he called out to God for, that he prayed for. He just went through life his way and was able to provide for himself, at least in his own mind. And the surface reading might indicate that the rich man missed his salvation because he was not generous. His lack of generosity reveals his heart. He's not condemned to hell because he didn't help Lazarus. He's condemned to hell because he's a sinner that rejected Jesus. But the fact that he showed no generosity towards Lazarus reveals the heart condition that was the real problem. 
And so we need to know. So I, I said last week we talked all about money. This week's a little bit more about heaven and only a little bit about money. But we do need to know that the way we use our money, Jesus knows this, preaches this, reminds us of this constantly throughout his ministry and life. The way we use our money reflects lots of spiritual truths. 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Do you want to know if somebody loves God or not? Does that person help those that are in need, help the vulnerable, help the single mother, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the sick? That's how you demonstrate the love of God. But I started this morning with talking about procrastination, which I think is, is really my real fear in this passage. That we might not be just outwardly rejecting God, but maybe just putting off the decision. And then that would result in great regret at the end. Uh, Psalm 90, I want to share this with you quickly. Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in our days. Listen to this. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. A couple things from there. You want to be wise, number your days. That's what verse 12 says. If you know your days are numbered and you know your life is short, you will gain a heart of wisdom. But then later he says, if you know that your days are short, you can be thankful for your afflictions in verse 15. You can be glad for your suffering if you know that this life is short and you're coming into a greater eternity. So my prayer for us this morning is that we would number our days. I truly believe that every Christian wants to be obedient and wants to honor God. Just like every guy in that class wanted to write that paper on October 15th. But I believe many of us put off faithfulness until we're ready. And some non-believers put off a decision for Christ until we're ready. We want more financial stability, work stability, family stability, whatever it is. So here's the way it looks. You have a young adult that says, well, or a young person, a teenager, that says, I'll follow Christ once I graduate from college. Then I'll be ready, I'll step into adulthood, then I'll be serious about my faith. And then that comes and they say, well, well when I find a spouse, when I get married, then... I'm really going to take my faith seriously. And then that, that milestone comes, and they put it off again. Well, when we have kids, then we'll want to raise our kids in our church, and then we'll really take following Jesus seriously. And then that comes, and kids are super stressful, and nobody sleeps for a little while. And they're like, well, maybe when the kids get older. And then it's maybe when the kids get a little bit older. And then it's maybe when the kids are out of college, and then you don't have any money, and then you're, you have other concerns going on, and, and work is busy, and you're mid-career or late career at that point. You have lots of responsibilities, and you're like, well, maybe in retirement, that's when I'm really going to serve Christ. I'm really going to be generous. I'm really going to invest in the local church. I'm going to disciple people. I'm going to grow in my faith. And the more you put it off, the easier it becomes to put off. And we let those immediate things that are in front of us be prioritized over the most essential things. And whether it's making a decision to follow Christ, making a decision to grow deeper in Christ, making a decision to fight against a sin that is infecting you, all of those things, our sinful hearts convince us we can put off a decision and we can make the decision tomorrow. And what Jesus is telling you today, when you number your days, you make wise decisions. So don't be the rich man and put off making a decision until it's too late. Be like Lazarus and call out in desperation for fulfillment and comfort 
at the person of Jesus. So we're going to sing. We're going to close um, by singing and worshiping. And I want you to reflect on the goodness of God that has saved us, that has made a way for us to receive righteousness through the shed blood of Jesus.